Hello, and welcome to this FRDH First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. This one is from my archives. I made Pax Americana in 2002 at the height of America's unipolar moment. It's a documentary essay about power and culture, republics versus empires, and what it means to be a citizen of both. It's about America's long argument with itself about what it should be. There's archive sound going back to the very early 20th century. American power today is more circumscribed than it was then, but the U.S. is still an empire, and its Republican values, in the age of Donald Trump, seem to be disappearing rapidly, something predicted by several of the people you will hear interviewed. I hope you enjoy it, and I urge you to share it widely. This is a long piece, a bit more than half an hour, so I won't come back afterwards. I'll do the commercial here. Please visit the website, www.goldfarbpod.com, and make a donation to keep the podcasts coming. And now, Pax Americana. In the third millennium after the birth of Christ, one nation bestrode the world like a colossus, the United States of America. To every corner of the globe, its emissaries and merchants traveled. From every corner of the globe, they brought back the wealth of nations. American culture was the world's culture, and its armies garrisoned the earth. It truly was the time of Pax Americana. Yet, at the height of its power, Americans did not know this. Then, one perfect day, a small group of shadowy men destroyed the symbol of American economic might and snuffed out 3,000 souls. And the people asked, why do they hate us? We aren't an occupying empire, are we? America is a republic, first and foremost. And the word empire today has come to mean something inimical to the concept of a republic. It has had this meaning at least since the time of William Jennings Bryan, three times candidate for president in the Gilded Age, when Republican America stood apart from Imperial Europe. Behold a republic, standing erect while empires all around are bowed beneath the weight of their own armament. A republic whose flag is love, while other flags are only fears. But the unchartable, unknowable flow of history has taken America to a more complex world than Brian could ever have imagined. Today, are we now an empire, is a reasonable question to ask. And while it's possible to glibly answer yes or no, it's a question that demands a bit more thought. A good place to begin an analysis of whether America is an imperial state is with the working definition of empire. For those who study the phenomenon, the definition is fairly straightforward. Control by the metropolitan state of other parts of the globe. Clearly it involves widespread rule in the sense of having a common security order that extends over a vast distance. There is a definition of empire that looks beyond the question of power over others. An empire is obviously 
a great source of concentrated power beyond the national boundaries of whatever state it was to begin with, whether it was seven hills beside the Tiber River in Rome or whether it was a nice sleepy little capital on the Potomac River, but I think rather at a deeper level. An empire is an organism. It is a tropism, as they say. It must constantly grow or else it starts to lose energy. It gets cold and it dies. Some are born to empire, some achieve empire, and others have empire thrust upon them, which, if any of the above applies to America, is subject to disagreement among imperial scholars or those who have worked on Capitol Hill or abroad in the service of the American government. Part of the confusion comes from the fact that you can't register your intent to be imperial. You don't incorporate yourself in Delaware or Panama or Liberia as USA, the registered trademark of imperial America. According to Joseph Nye, dean of Harvard's John F. Kennedy School of Government, America is not an imperial power. Now, there's some people who say if you have economic influence or strong cultural influence, that's an empire. I think that's too loose a usage. Uh, if you actually think of classical empires like Rome or Britain, the presence of people on the ground who set daily policies is, for my mind, an important part of the definition of empire. I lived in Uganda for a while under British rule, and they set the daily curriculum of the schools. The civil servants were white. You couldn't go certain places or do certain things because of British-controlled police that were there. Uh, that's an empire. John Smith, a former British colonial administrator in Africa, is inclined to agree. I wouldn't have said that America was an imperial power in the strict political sense. It does have responsibility for a very few small states, and I think most Americans don't see these as colonies, although they're clearly dependencies. But there are other dimensions to America's global might, and these make it an imperial power, according to Chalmers Johnson, director of the Japan Policy Research Institute. The American empire today is made up of military bases, hundreds of them around the world, very much like the old Roman Empire, or for that matter, even the British Empire in the late 19th century. The technical term the Pentagon uses is deployment, forward deployment, rather than colonies or acquisition of territories or emigration or other such things. But Joseph Nye says there's more to assessing America's imperial status than looking at military power. Power today is really like a three-dimensional chessboard. On the top chessboard is the board of military power. And there it's true that the United States is the dominant country you know, in terms of its global military reach. But if you look at the middle board of this three-dimensional structure, the economic board, uh, the U.S., Europe, Japan, and China account for two-thirds of the world's economy. And the U.S. can't do things in this area alone. It has to get the cooperation of others. And if you look at the bottom part of this three-dimensional chess game, the board of transnational relations without the control of government, ranging from bankers transferring vast amounts of funds on little green screens at one end, or uh, hackers disrupting cyberspace at the other end, or terrorists uh, transporting weapons of mass destruction, nobody's in control. This part is chaotic because our military power doesn't necessarily work in those other two domains.
The word empire today has a negative connotation. Its journey to the pejorative began in the decades after World War I, when the European colonial powers began the long process of disengagement from their empires. The process was accelerated after the Second World War, as national liberation movements in Africa, the Middle East and Asia forced the powers to speed up their retreat. On this side of the Atlantic, the heated rhetoric of the 1960s borrowed heavily from national liberation movements, and in the U.S., words like empire and imperial became synonymous with tyranny. The designation empire became a taunt, a double-barreled insult in the mouth of President Ronald Reagan when he called the Soviet Union an evil empire. But it was not ever thus. For the Founding Fathers, empire was not a pejorative term, according to Thomas Donnelly of the Washington Think Tank Project for the New American Century. To the Founding Fathers of the United States, the term empire was not a term of disapproval. Alexander Hamilton said America was Hercules in a cradle. And in fact, the very first paragraph of the Federalist Papers Hamilton writes of America being already among the most interesting empires of history. Likewise, Thomas Jefferson, soon to be Hamilton's bitter political opponent, described the United States as an empire of liberty. None of them, regardless of their views about the strength of the American government, had any question that the United States would be a great and large power. The term they used for that was empire. But in the first decades after World War II, empire was used infrequently to describe American might. One writer revived the term. People have accused me of being the first American writer to refer to our empire. Gore Vidal, who has traced what he sees as America's imperial history in essays and novels. We've always, always been in the empire business, whether it was taking the land away from the Indians, Picking a war with Mexico in 1846, Ulysses Grant was a young lieutenant in that war, and he used to say, I have always felt that the Civil War was the judgment of God on the United States for what it had done in Mexico, which was to treat a weaker power as if we were some insolent European empire, exerting our will over another people to seize their land. We've been at this a long time. Vidal and others who see America as imperial believe the foundation of the modern American empire began as the 19th century turned into the 20th. The event that sparked it was the Spanish-American War. Theodore Roosevelt, a bumptious young man who was undersecretary at the Navy, in charge of the fleet after the Maine, a, one of our battleships blew up in Havana. He blamed the Spanish on it, and he ordered the fleet not to Cuba. He ordered the fleet to Manila so that we could seize the Philippine Islands. We promised the Filipinos that we would give them independence. As soon as we got the Spanish out, we took over, and we kept it for two generations. And I think 300,000 Filipinos, men, women, and children, were killed during our residence on those islands. That's how empires start. And that's how debates about empires start. The U.S. adventure in the Philippines prompted waves of patriotism and doubt. Mark Twain, a journalist before he was a novelist, decided to check out the situation for himself and lost a little of his imperialist fervor along the way. You ask me about what is called imperialism. Well, I have formed views about that question. I left these shores of Vancouver a red-hot imperialist. I wanted the American Eagle to go screaming into the Pacific 
It seems tiresome and tame for it to content itself with the Rockies. Why not spread its wings over the Philippines, I asked myself. It seemed to me a great task to which we had addressed ourselves. But I have thought some more since then, and I have read carefully the Treaty of Paris. And I've seen that we do not intend to free, but to subjugate the people of the Philippines. We have gone there to conquer, not to redeem. And so I am an anti-imperialist. I am opposed to having the eagle put its talons on any other land. By the end of the second decade of the 20th century, the American presence in the Pacific was such a well-established global fact that it inspired an Italian, Giacomo Puccini, to write an opera based on the cross-cultural love of a Japanese woman and an American naval officer in Madame Butterfly. When America defeated Japan in World War II, then occupied the country, some Americans who worked there had a real sense of working for an imperial power. In the period when I first arrived in Japan in the summer of 1953, I distinctly felt like a Roman legionnaire. Chalmers Johnson, former CIA man, self-described spear carrier for empire, and author of Blowback, The Costs and Consequences of American Empire. Dressed in my uniform as a junior naval officer, I, generally speaking, was treated with a great deal of deference. One had the strong sense that this deference reflected the military might of the United States that had conquered Japan. During his time in Japan in the early 50s, Johnson observed a remarkable process. Japan was being turned into an American satellite, into our version of East Germany, the richest place in uh, our empire, just as East Germany, was the richest place in the former Soviet empire. He is not speaking metaphorically. I mean that quite literally. That is, that's the first thing a, a Japanese politician does upon becoming prime minister, is to get on an airplane and fly to Washington and report. Precisely the same kind of thing that would happen in East Europe, that when a uh, new prime minister of East Germany came to power, the very first thing he had to do was to report to Moscow. In the last two decades, the American military has deployed all over the globe. United States paratroopers have invaded Grenada with helicopter gunships. Our armed forces are engaging them in fierce battle. All Grenadians report immediately to our respective militia bases. It's a humanitarian mission. And our mission is to get in there and open up these corridors and provide humanitarian relief. I expect everybody is wondering, well, that's great, but uh, how long? And I wish I knew the answer. <laughs> the message of the United States to the Haitian dictators is clear. Your time is up. Leave now or we will force you from power. The presence of American troops has sometimes become a focus of violent anti-American sentiment, particularly in the Middle East. Yesterday's acts of terrorism in Beirut, which killed so many young American and French servicemen, were a horrifying reminder of the type of enemy that we face in many critical areas of the world today. Vicious, cowardly, and ruthless. Many Americans are wondering why we must keep our forces in Lebanon. Well, the reason they must stay there until the situation is under control is quite clear. 
we have vital interests in Lebanon. And in the aftermath of the World Trade Center attack, Muslim radicals like Isan al-Aryan of Egypt's Muslim Brotherhood were quick to justify the carnage on the grounds of the U.S. military's presence in the Middle East. Al-Aryan says, more than anything, that is what fuels the anger of the typical Muslim militant. You want to change your policy which is implemented, which is imposed on our countries. This is a message. You are astonished about that puzzle. Why those come? But they come because you are here in our countries, by your troops, by your policies. Not surprisingly, the attacks have not deterred the U.S. military's growth. Today, the comparative size of the U.S. military in relation to other nations is without historical precedent. And for the first time in history, American troops are garrisoned in the graveyard of empire, Central Asia, in Afghanistan. Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan. Analysts agree the U.S. military will have many more deployments in the years to come. Reluctantly, over the last decade, but aggressively since September 11th, the American government has been changing its view about the mission of the military. During the Cold War, the United States military was structured primarily to fight a big war against another great power in a conventional military sense. Thomas Donnelly of the Project for the New American Century. That has not always been the primary role for the American military. For the first 75 years, until the Civil War certainly, most American soldiers fought in small detachments, cavalry regiments and the like, settling the American West or protecting American shipping vessels overseas. That's not entirely dissimilar from what we're asking our military to do now, to patrol the perimeter, as it were, make sure that the lawless frontier is not able to, you know, reach out and damage us, whereas, you know, 150 years ago, it was the American West that was the lawless region of the world. These days, it's the Afghan-Pakistan border. A scholar of imperial history, like Yale University's Paul Kennedy, looks at this kind of military deployment and sees similarities to previous empires. Kennedy says there is a very specific analogy between America today and the British Empire in the 19th century, which also faced a challenge from the Islamic world, led by a character not unlike Osama bin Laden, the Mahdi. The British liberal government, Mr. Gladstone's government, went into Egypt in 1882 to subdue unrest by the Mujahideen, by the fundamentalist Islams against the Western residents in Cairo and Alexandria. And Mr. Gladstone promised in no less than 52 public speeches that pretty soon Britain will be out of Egypt. It didn't leave Egypt until 1956. We will say we have no intention of being like the Roman or British Empire, but You know, we've had garrisons in Saudi Arabia for 10 years now. What will happen when they've been in 50 years? In speaking about empire, there is another word with equally many shades of meaning that needs to be discussed. The word is power. There has never been a time when power was equally shared among nations. All states have a will to power. Thomas Donnelly. The reason that we have a strong government and we have the United States at all is to exercise power, presumably in the defense of liberty. The United States has a unique will to power because it's driven by 
a set of universal principles. So we have the normal interests that any state would have to preserve itself and protect itself. But principles are part of our power. They spur us on and they attract others to us. I resist that thought because it is one of the most common themes in the history of either British imperialism or of American imperialism, the thought that it was an inadvertent empire. The idea that America's global sway is a result of anything as inadvertent as the powerful attraction of American principles is something Chalmers Johnson disagrees with. For the British to forget the prison colonies on the Andaman Islands, for the Americans to forget the war of repression when we made the Philippines a colony at the turn of the century, this theme of inadvertence or uh, accidental imperialists, I think it's actually more planned than that. Gore Vidal agrees. The author pinpoints the beginning of the American empire in a four-way conversation held at the time of the Spanish-American War and points out that among the four founding fathers of the modern American empire were descendants of the founding fathers of the United States, including Brooks Adams, great-grandson of John Adams. These four sat down and thought it out, and they based it on the fact that an island power is by necessity a sea power. They said the United States equally is a sea power with having the Atlantic Ocean on one side, Pacific on the other, Gulf on the third. So we would have great fleets, and great fleets needed great colonies in order to support them, and one colony would support another colony, and you had more fleets, and you had more possessions. Yale University's Paul Kennedy steers a course between the rhetoric of those who know the U.S. to be an empire and wish it wasn't, like Chalmers Johnson and Gore Vidal, and those who think it glib to apply the term imperial to America. Historian Kennedy, one of the world's acknowledged experts on empire, says we should look back to Queen Victoria's Britain for an accurate description of contemporary American power. In the 19th century, people began to see that in addition to having a formal empire, there could also exist something which we historians call informal empire. You have to think of the British in the Yangtze Valley in the 19th century. British consuls are there, British trade dominates, British gunboats and cruisers go in and out. The local government doesn't do anything which would offend the British, but they're not technically part of the empire. They are, however, definitely part of an informal empire. There have been many number ones, supreme imperial powers throughout history. They have existed on virtually every continent, often at the same time, frequently operating in ignorance of one another. In Western culture, when we think of empire, thoughts of Rome dominate. More than 1,500 years after its empire collapsed, Rome is still with us, in our language, our architecture, in our dominant form of Christianity, in our popular imagination. From its beginnings, Hollywood has used Rome to symbolize decadent might, the foe of American democratic values, and Americans have flocked to see films like Spartacus and Ben-Hur. There is only one reality in the world today. Look to the West, Judah. Don't be a fool, look to Rome. I would rather be a fool than a traitor or a killer. I am a soldier. Yes, who kills for Rome. And Rome is evil. I warn you. No, I warn you. Rome is an affront to God. Rome is strangling my people and my country, the whole earth. But not forever. It 
I tell you, the day Rome falls, there will be a shout of freedom such as the world has never heard before. Hollywood screenwriters, like Gore Vidal, have knowingly used Roman epics to send out subtle political messages, messages that sometimes have an eerie echo in reality. Either you help me or you oppose me. You have no other choice. You're either for me or against me. Every nation in every region now has a decision to make. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. But does American power objectively compare to that of Rome? America's dominance of the globe is pretty well equal to the Roman dominance of what was for them the known world, the Mediterranean world. Alan Massey, journalist and author of a sequence of novels about the first Roman emperors. America started, in fact, in many ways rather like the Roman Empire, because the first American imperial wars were against neighboring states, uh, Mexico, the Spanish-American War, but also, of course, they expanded to subdue and to make it to eradicate what the Romans would have called the barbarian tribes, uh, the American Indians. The American empire has, has clearly changed its nature. It is no longer an empire which has necessarily proceeded by conquering and occupying peoples. Its influence has been economic, cultural. Chalmers Johnson, author of Blowback, The Costs and Consequences of American Empire, argues that most international commerce is organized by America's authorities for America's benefit. Today, it seems to me, the term of art is globalization, which essentially means forcing the rest of the world to develop economic structures modeled after those of the United States. The U.S. Treasury names the director of the IMF or the World Bank. That is, the voting rules ensure that, for example, uh, the Netherlands has larger votes than countries like India or China, and the United States dominates these organizations. They can't do anything without the approval of the United States. The United States also staffs the highest executive levels in them of people that are trusted by, above all, the United States Treasury. But the question remains, does this assertion of power represent something imperial? After all, the president doesn't order his Praetorian guards to accompany the United States' preferred appointees to the World Bank and IMF headquarters in Washington and install them in their wood-paneled suites. These appointments are made as a result of a more traditional form of political bartering among nations. And the United States remains a democratic republic. The president is not a Caesar. And this is where many would depart from the argument that America is an empire. But the tension between imperial power abroad and Republican government at home is not without precedent. You sent for me, Caesar? Once again, Hollywood has explored this in a Roman epic, Gladiator. Tell me again, Maximus. Why are we here? For the glory of the empire, sire. Ah, oh, yes. The film has a scene which imagines the dying emperor Marcus Aurelius giving one final order to his general, Maximus. There is one more duty that I ask of you before you go home. What would you have me do, Caesar? I want you to become the protector of Rome after I die. I will empower you to one end alone. 
to give power back to the people of Rome and end the corruption that has crippled it. Rome is to be a republic again. For centuries, as Rome grew to dominate what it considered to be the known world, the debate continued among its citizens. Are we a republic or an empire? I asked author Alan Massey whether he thought the U.S., like Rome, had left its republican origins behind. Massey said that wasn't the point. A republic can be an empire. The Roman Empire came pretty close to reaching its full extent in the days of the republic. Whereas in 19th century America, the Senate was more important than the president, since Franklin D. Roosevelt, the president has been more important than the Senate the imperial presidency. Was it Arthur Schlesinger who coined the phrase? While the president is limited in the term of office, you will presumably never have anything exactly resembling an emperor. But then one has to ask, what is the permanent government of Washington? I don't necessarily go as far as Gore Vidal, who says the permanent government hires an actor to be president for four years or eight years. But I think there is a permanent power there which endures as presidents change. Massey adds, if the Roman model is followed, Americans won't realize the nature of their government has changed. The transition to imperial rule will be disguised. The first emperor is generally considered to be Augustus, but the title he took for himself was Princeps, or First Citizen. He said very clearly, after the Battle of Actium, when he had defeated Antony and ended the Civil War, I restored the Republic. And so he did. It was a facade. The Republic went on. The Senate kept meeting and so on. But behind it there was the permanent imperial power. Gore Vidal goes further than Massey and says the Romans colluded in their Republic's destruction. After Augustus's death, Vidal says the Senate gave untrammeled power to the new emperor, Tiberius. Tiberius was an extremely intelligent man. And when he came to the Principate, the Senate sent him a message to the effect that whatever the divine emperor wanted from the Senate in the way of legislation on any subject, they would grant him in advance. And he sent them a message, and he said, suppose the emperor is insane. Suppose that uh, he is in the hands of, of, of lunatic people. Suppose what he wants is criminal and wrong and against all of our customs. You cannot grant any emperor, including myself, such powers. And then, as an afterthought, he said, how eager you are to be slaves. We look to the past as a guide to the future, although we hope the past doesn't limit what we may become. The wind is howling through houseteads, the best-preserved Roman fort along the wall built by the Emperor Hadrian 2,000 years ago. Hadrian's wall runs 73 miles across the island of Britain, this was the northernmost extension of the Roman Empire, the end of the civilized world to the legionnaires stationed here. On the other side of the wall was chaos. On this side of the wall, order. Here the rain blows in horizontally, and when the cloud passes, you can see north from England into the moorlands of Scotland, treeless hills rolling to the horizon. 
On this day, RAF jets training for missions alongside the U.S. in Afghanistan, Iraq, the Balkans, fly not more than 300 feet above the ruins, bringing the modern into close conjunction with the ancient. Looking over the wall into Scotland, huddling against the rain in the ruins of the old fort's granary, this is a good place to have an argument with yourself about America's position in the world. You have to leave America's shores to fully experience American power. You have to wander through places where empires have come and gone to appreciate that there is this thing called power, that one nation always has more than the others, and that no nation keeps it forever. In the end, empires leave behind only remnants, a wall, a road, a word that migrates into your language, like republic. At this old bloody border fort, you realize that today power is America's, and if we didn't have it, somebody else would. Global power makes Americans wealthy, and it also brings responsibility. And you can argue that you don't want this responsibility. And you can argue that we are simply doing business with the world, not running it. You can equally argue that we are dominating the world and crushing people's culture, all in the name of profit for American corporations. You can argue that America should use its military to stop ethnic cleansing and crush fascist regimes in the Balkans or Afghanistan. You can argue that America, given its bloody overt and covert interventions in Central America and Iran, should not use its military to crush fascist regimes in the Balkans or Afghanistan or Iraq. But the reason you argue the point at all is because of American power. And much of the debate hinges on the word empire and whether you think imperial power is good or bad. And even if you don't use the word empire, there is something essentially imperial in the way we Americans have always defined our nation's purpose. Listen to William Jennings Bryan, recorded a hundred years ago. He never uses the word empire. Does it change the essence of what he's saying? The whole republic increasing in population, in wealth, in strength, and in influence, solving the problems of civilization, and hastening the coming of a universal brotherhood. A republic which shapes thrones and dissolves aristocracies by its silent example and gives light and inspiration to those who sit in darkness. Behold a republic, gradually but surely becoming a supreme moral factor in the world's progress and the accepted arbiter of the world's disputes, a republic whose history, like the path of the just, is as the shining light that shineth more and more unto the perfect day.